The New Testament reading is from James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's great to be with you. It's uh, sunny outside. The leaves are beautiful. And we're talking about the Enneagram in church. You're here in church. I mean, what else could you ask for? Don't, a- don't answer that. We are talking about the Enneagram in church, which may feel a, like a little bit of a disconnect to some of you. If you know uh, about the Enneagram, if maybe you've looked it up on, online, um, but we are doing using the Enneagram as sort of a roadmap to this sermon series because the church can be a place to be sort of informed rather than transformed, that it can be a place where people come to accumulate more and more cognitive data about God without necessarily encountering God. And churches become sort of communities of doctrinal compliance that really can serve, if you're not careful, as sort of insulation from God, insulation from a very messy, intimate, enigmatic kind of encounter with God because it's a relational encounter. Doctrinal compliance, especially in the mind of Enneagram Fives, can help us to avoid sort of that costly intimacy. And Enneagram Fives have an opinion on this, and that is that we're fine with that. We're okay with that. Meeting God cognitively is kind of our forte. We use our heads to learn, to know, to observe. And I say we because I I said a few weeks ago, I'm an Enneagram Five. We love to know. We love to observe. Christianity sort of practiced as an accumulation of more information is perfectly acceptable to us. And in American Christianity, particularly in the Protestant tradition, this is sort of a superpower to have because it's a very heady, very cognitive, very doctrinal sort of tradition. And mastering the Enneagram, for us fives, we see that as a challenge. We want to know everything about it. But mastering it is mostly memorizing the numbers and the wings and the triads and being capable of talking about the Enneagram in some informed fashion, at least appearing to understand the Enneagram quite well. Well, learning for a five in the context 
of the Enneagram, that is leveraging it in a positive way for us, is learning, in fact, how we tend to use knowledge as a defense mechanism, how we show up for life and feel safe because of the information that we have downloaded through a lifetime of information gathering. Now, as I said, I score is a f- score is probably not the right word, but I am a five on the Enneagram type. And it feels weird to do a sermon about myself, but thankfully, my good friend and in-town elder, Scott Bowman, is a five, and so we can just talk about him for the next 20 minutes. I know him quite well. Uh, He was the rather large gentleman uh, who was up doing announcements before. Uh, But it seems curious to me that, and maybe a little bit suspicious, that fives may have had a a hand in naming the Enneagram types because the needs of the types that we've seen so far, one through four, they seem kind of annoying, right? While the need of the five, as you'll see in a minute, is very respectable. The number one is sort of the need to be perfect. What we call these people sticklers, perfectionists. It's, you know, kind of annoying, right? Number two is the need to be needed. We even have a clinical term for this that's codependent. Number three is the need to be successful. So these are our egotistical praise whores that climb corporate ladders. Number four is the need to be special. These are the people given to some bit of melodrama. Well, fives have a sort of benign need, which is how we like it. We need to perceive. We need to know. We need to observe. These are very virtuous-sounding terms, right? Now, we all know know know-it-alls are annoying, people that come off as self-professed geniuses, but fives don't often present that way. Ours or theirs is sort of an introverted presumed expertise. There's a high level of self-satisfaction in our encyclopedic knowledge of everything. It's not very pedantic. It's not showy. I mean, Scott Bowman, for example, is very, very smart, but you would never know it. (laughs) Full disclosure, from a five, these strengths can become weaknesses pretty quickly because we tend to accumulate knowledge with a sense of detachment. We observe rather than enter into human relationships and human situations And it's curious to me that a lot of pastors are fives, which is strange because pastoring is not done ideally in a library. It's a a very real-life sort of profession. It's relational. It's intimate. And fives prefer more detached, more clinical settings. So it's common for pastors who are fives to ask, when can I be done pastoring so I can go back to my library, my reading? That's why we got into this profession. We loved reading. We loved studying. We went to seminary, and they filled our head with knowledge. And then we get to the church, and we realize this is all about people. This is scary. I have to, like, enter into relationships that I'm not prepared for their questions, and that is one of the five's greatest fears. Unlike fours, we want to be needed by as few people as humanly possible because being needed by people interrupts our reading. 
So by temperament, fives would be primed to be very good theologians, but without a great deal of care and introspection, not very good pastors, because pastoring is not clinical. It's not theoretical, but it's very intimate, and it's very unpredictable. Now, in our gospel passage, we read of this very famous story of Zacchaeus that also, he also has a very famous theme song, which I won't sing for you, uh, because that will be the only thing you'll remember from this sermon. But I grew up Baptist, and it's very catchy. You can look it up. But he climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. That's kind of all I remember. But notice that he wanted to see. He wanted to look upon Jesus. He wanted to watch what was going on. He had heard about this great rabbi, and he comes to observe. What can I find out about him? He wants to investigate, but from where? From a distance. Now, it says that he is the chief tax collector, so presumably he's a wealthy person. He sees himself as influential. He'd probably assume that he could have an audience with Jesus. He could just you know, call up someone, call up the rabbi, and say, would you meet with me? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes and climbs a tree at some remove from Jesus, and he observes. And this also, by the way, takes him out of sort of the midst of the crowds, the hoi polloi below him. This doesn't require any commitment. It doesn't require any involvement whatsoever certainly no involvement that would place demands upon him. He doesn't have to mingle with anyone. He doesn't have to be seen as being connected to Jesus. He's just there to watch. And it's a place of isolation, being alone with one's thoughts, being alone right in the middle of a crowd. That is a very five sort of experience. It's a place, however, of hiding. It's a place of intentional detachment by reserving judgment. He's a five up a tree. Now, the Bible, unfortunately, doesn't give us a concordance of all the characters and their Enneagram types, so we don't know that Zacchaeus is a five, but this is a very five thing to do. You've heard about this great new experience, this new knowledge, this new teacher, and you want to go find out something, but you don't want to commit too early. You want to reserve judgment. But the problem is that Jesus, you see, sees him too. And he walks right up to him and says, hurry up, get down. (laughs) I must stay at your house tonight. Uh Uh-oh. That is the worst fear of a five. To have someone invite themselves over and not like a week into the future, you can kind of get mentally and emotionally prepared for that. But tonight, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come and stay at your house, and I can just see if he was the five, the wheels turning. I haven't prepared myself mentally. What if he sits in my chair? What if he stays too long? What if the conversation drifts into an area that I haven't read up on yet? It could be very uncomfortable. At home, I always sit in the same place in our TV room slash den, and I've never said specifically that this is my space to my family. I mean, that would be kind of rude, right? But everyone knows that this is my space, because even if I get up 
I leave an impression on the couch, and around this impression is a bunch of books and empty Diet Coke cans and my laptop and a magazine or three and a couple of Pentel P207 mechanical pens because we have to have the best of everything. We've read up on mechanical pens. I bet Scott even has a mechanical pen in his pocket right now. It's sort of a circle of five-ish things. This is my spot. And so what do my kids do? Of course, they sit in that spot on purpose just to mess with me. If Katie comes home and she says, hey, did, did you remember that thing that we have tonight, that social environment, I will have a mild panic attack if I haven't planned for it. Because, see, I already have a relaxing evening planned to be with myself and to read Wikipedia. That's what's on my agenda pretty much every night, maybe some Netflix as well. And so if I forget something, as in the case of not know, if someone invites himself over as like Jesus is doing to Zacchaeus, I have a mild panic attack. On an Enneagram forum this week, I read of a tweet. This is a very five tweet. Please respect my privacy during this time. Nothing happened. I just don't want to talk to anyone. But Jesus invites himself over, and he invites himself into Zacchaeus' life. Because salvation, according to the Bible, is not found in observation. It's not found in just cognitive awareness or accumulation of knowledge. It's never found in an emotional distance from Jesus, but actually in a complete realignment of one's life in light of Jesus's life. Today I have come to stay at your house, Jesus says. And in verse 5, that becomes today salvation has come upon this house. Because where Jesus is, salvation is. But to find, to encounter that salvation, we have to welcome it into our home, as it were. We have to receive him as who he says he is and reorder our lives accordingly. And in the American Protestant tradition, most times you hear this said in a way of, you must believe in the sense of you must have your neurons firing in the right way, connecting with the right propositions, and then you will be saved. But what Jesus does is he walks into this person's home, and believing takes on a much more existential scope, a much more responsive and embodied response to find salvation. Now, the great gift that fives can bring to the world, healthy fives, is a sense of objectivity, a sense of calm in the midst of stormy decisions, stormy relationships. We make very good consultants. We make very good third-party mediators because we can generally see all sides. And even politically, we tend to be able to do that, to be empathetic towards both sides or all sides because we've spent a great deal of time on Wikipedia or in books reading about both sides. But you see, that strength becomes a deficit or a weakness, but when we prefer to stay remote, 
to just utilize that information often for control over other people and to control our world, to constrain the movement of other people and God into our lives. We compartmentalize, and so that calmness, which can become, which can be an asset, can become a deficit when we choose to always stay at an emotional distance. That's how that calmness is generated, by a certain emotional distance. But if we don't recognize that, it can begin to be detachment. And it can begin to, people can begin to feel that you're remote from them. And we can drift into this sort of spirituality of observation. But see, Zacchaeus, he must come down from the tree. He must be seen on the streets with Jesus. He must change the way that he goes about his work. You see, tax collectors fleeced the people and asked for and always took up a little bit more than they were required to because they had to pony up to the chief tax collector. That was Zacchaeus. And then that corruption kind of flowed downstream. And so Zacchaeus was a, a hated person. He was sort of the worst sinner in Jericho. And he's got to change this. He can't continue working in the same way that he worked these many years before. And he must also, according to his own decision, his own inclination, because it doesn't say that Jesus told him what to do, but he feels that now he must make reparations four times over to anyone that he has harmed. He begins to get it. We don't know how long this episode was, but in a compressed way, what Luke is telling us is that Zacchaeus gets Jesus, the spirituality of Jesus is a pathway of lived wisdom rather than salvation by learning more stuff, salvation by cognition. In our James passage, James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their, their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom that comes from heaven, full of mercy and good fruit. That is a spirituality that takes up residence in one's life. They become wise by living according to the guidance of God in real life, not in detachment. And wisdom comes when we allow God to access those parts of our lives that we feel most uncomfortable about letting anyone into, those places that we are afraid to give people access to, places of for a five, ignorance, places of ill-preparedness, and places of I don't know. <laughs> That's a big one for me, and Katie can attest to that. Saying I don't know instead of just making up something to sound informed. Allowing God to enter into that space is how we as fives, and really all of us here have places where we corral or we cordon off areas of our lives from other people and from God, and we can learn from this. We don't get to God through our cognition, but through God's embodiment, through His incarnation. By God coming in, you see, through our front door, 
saying, today salvation has entered into your house. It has come upon you. Salvation is never found by going up through acquiring knowledge or otherwise, but it's always received as it comes down, as it comes upon us. And in Jesus, the unseen, the untouchable God comes to rescue us by being touchable. He comes to rescue us by being enfleshed, by being relational, by being intimate, by meeting us in our enigmatic lives. He brings, you see, spiritual rescue in a body for a physical world. Now, friends, as we conclude, you can see the sort of five-ish cynicism all through our world. We talk about, wow, I let my emotions get away from me. We value in work decision-making that is devoid of any sort of discernible pathos of being someone making a decision because they are too, and they're too invested emotionally in the decision. We get criticism. Wow, you're being way too emotional right now. And maybe we even apologize in a conversation for getting weepy, for crying. Don't do that anymore. We should, we should apologize for our stoicism. We should apologize for sort of serving the idol of male Cartesian thinking, that our job is to stay very stoic and have the stiff upper lip. It's very Anglo, and it's very wrong. Don't apologize for crying anymore, because Jesus gives us not only permission to cry, but he gives us an example of crying. In fact, weeping. He is the weeping Savior. He is the, the passionate Savior. He's the empathetic, relational healer, the embodied Redeemer. He's the one, you see, that made people mutter, he has gone into a sinner's house. That was how radical he was and how different than he was from the culture's expectations of what a rabbi should be about and what religious people should be about. The one from whom fives, you see, hide in a tree, then encounters Jesus, and this person, Zacchaeus, five or not, he gives half of his possessions to the poor, and he repays people four times over. He makes, Jesus makes, the worst sinner in town, a son of Abraham. Not because Zacchaeus has cracked the code, he was smarter than everyone else, he's read more theological books, but because salvation came upon him, because Jesus moved into his life, because Jesus came to seek and save the lo those that are lost in their own heads. Let's pray. Father, I pray that five or not, whether this is our primary way, our primary defense mechanism from intimacy and the primary way that we defend uh, against you coming into places in our lives that make us feel uncomfortable. All of us can see this in our lives, and I pray that you would meet us not in just the ways that 
we feel is appropriate, not in just the ways that we plan for, not in the ways that make us feel comfortable, but God, I pray for myself. I pray for those people gathered here, whether believers, whether questioners, doubters, seekers, that we would be open to the movement of your Spirit in ways that we don't expect, that we're not looking for, and maybe that we don't even want. Lord, would you surprise us? And we pray that as we come to this table, that you would surprise us by your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness poured out for all. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.